gestational diabetes help researchers discover the key to why some people develop type 2 diabetes? Can type 2 diabetes be reversed? These are just two of the questions Dr. Ravi Ratnakaran, an endocrinologist and scientist at Mount Sinai's Leadership Sinai Center for Diabetes and a professor at the University of Toronto, is trying to answer. I'm Krista Lamb, and on this episode of the Diabetes Canada podcast, I'll be talking to Dr. Ratnakaran about his work in type 2 diabetes research. Welcome, Dr. Ratnakaran. Thank you. So let's start. Um, your primary focus is on type 2 diabetes, and what is it about that that interested you? Well, type 2 diabetes is one of the um, biggest uh, public health challenges of our time. Um, we're right now seeing what's essentially a global epidemic of type 2 diabetes, and um, this is going to have not this not only has um, important implications for uh, our health the health of our society currently, but also has perhaps even bigger implications for the future. And in doing that, you have done a lot of work in looking at restoring the body's ability to produce insulin. And that's a really exciting prospect for people, but can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the reason that we focus on um, the body's ability to make insulin in people with type 2 diabetes and in people at risk of type 2 diabetes is that that inability to make enough insulin, which we call pancreatic beta cell dysfunction, is the fundamental defect that is that causes people to have type 2 diabetes. So you can think of it as people who develop type 2 diabetes have some sort of defect in their um, a body's ability to make insulin, this beta cell defect. This defect is chronic and it's progressive, and so it gets worse over time. It's largely genetically determined. We know that there have been um, over 70 genes associated with type 2 diabetes and almost all relate to the secretion of insulin by the beta cells. Um, but we know that the genetics isn't the whole story. It's also partly an interaction between genetics and how we live. And in susceptible people, the right circumstances will lead to progressive worsening of the ability of the beta cells to make insulin, and that will first lead to blood sugars to rise from the normal range to the pre-diabetes range, and then eventually from the pre-diabetes range to the diabetes range. Now clinically, our big challenge is that none of our current therapies for type 2 diabetes have yet been shown to conclusively stop that process. And so this is why, in practice, if a patient has type 2 diabetes, it's a chronic condition that typically gets worse over time because we're not able to stop the underlying problem, which is that deterioration of the beta cells. So typically what happens is people will, um, when they're diagnosed with diabetes, will start perhaps with um, changes in their lifestyle or um, with um, medication initially, typically metformin, and initially sugars will improve, but eventually sugars um, typically rise because the beta cells continue to decline. Then we add a second medication and initially the sugars will improve, but ultimately they typically rise because the beta cells continue to decline. And we keep doing this. We keep adding more and more medication over time because of our inability to stop the beta cell deterioration. And so that's why the focus of our research is on trying to, one, understand why the beta cells get worse over time, and two, um, stop that process if we can. And what are you doing to do that? Because I know you're doing some clinical trials and you have some things going on where you're looking at the idea, and we say reversing type 2 diabetes, right. but that can be a bit of a controversial way to yes. say it. Um, so explain it a little bit so that the layperson might understand. Yeah, the way to look at it is when I talk about 
the beta cell function progressively deteriorating over time, it's, it sounds as though that's an inexorable process that is just happening and there's nothing that we can do about it. And that's where there's, um, there's confusion. Because um, you commented on how reversibility is somewhat of a controversial issue, and you're absolutely right in that regard. Because the, um, the point that sometimes is overlooked is that there is a reversible component to the deterioration of beta cell function early in the course of diabetes. And so you can think of it as a genetically determined process that interacts with our lifestyle, that leads to worsening of the beta cells over time, and early in the process, there is a reversible component. Later in the process, after many years of diabetes, we don't believe that there's a reversible um, uh, element. And so it's this confusion around the idea of a reversible component that's present early but not present later that leads to some of the um, controversy and debate around can you reverse diabetes, can you put it in remission, and concepts like that. And so our work is very much focused in this area because we look at that initial reversibility early in the course of diabetes as a, as a glorious opportunity to either reverse it or change the natural history of the diabetes in a patient and thereby um, better their health outcomes over the long run. And this sort of leads into, I, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, your work in gestational diabetes because you are also looking at the root causes of gestational diabetes. Does that factor in or am I misinterpreting that? No, no, you're quite correct because when, you know, the way to, the way to, that, uh, to look at it is we do clinical trials in people who are early in the course of diabetes where we give interventions to try to address that reversible component of beta cell dysfunction and induce a quote-unquote remission and then try to maintain that um, um, over time. And so those are our interventional studies in where we're trying to, to um, uh, you know, address the underlying process. But at the same time, we also do prospective observational studies where we're following patients over time who are at risk of developing diabetes in order to understand those early changes in beta cell function and thereby guide the types of interventions that we might consider for changing that, that, um, uh, that, that reversible component of the process. And this is where gestational diabetes comes into play because gestational diabetes is a, um, is a condition that arises in women who have a chronic underlying defect in beta cell function that is only first recognized in pregnancy because of two factors. One, pregnancy poses a um, stress test, if you will, for the beta cells by virtue of normal physiologic changes that happen in a woman's body when she's pregnant. And two, in the context of that stress test, we um, screen pregnant women for gestational diabetes. And it's in fact the only situation in clinical medicine where you do population screening for diabetes. And so women who are diagnosed with GDM, they have a defect in beta cell function. And that's parent in the pregnancy, and then after the pregnancy, people sometimes, well, it's recommended that they, that they do uh, glucose tolerance testing within six weeks to six months postpartum. Um, but people often don't think beyond that, that even if that testing is normal, the fact that they had gestational diabetes tells us they have a defect in their beta cell function. And in many of these women, in the years after pregnancy, that defect is going to continue to get worse just like the natural history of diabetes that I described earlier. And that's why women with gestational diabetes are at risk of developing type 2 diabetes, very high risk. It's um, 
And so we, st we study actually not just women with gestational diabetes, but actually all women um, in relation to what we know about their physiology from what happened in pregnancy. And we study them longitudinally over time to understand what's happening to the beta cells. And so this also leads me into, we talked to Lorraine Lipscomb in the last season of the podcast about her work in gestational diabetes in terms of looking at whether lifestyle intervention or different um, programs can help to uh, support women who have gestational diabetes to de decrease their risk. Um, does that play into beta cell dysfunction or, or can you explain that a little bit? Absolutely. At the end of the day, any intervention in which you're trying to prevent people from developing diabetes, ultimately for a long-lasting success, it's going to need to change the natural history of beta cell function. Most interventions that we do, both for the um, uh, trying to prevent diabetes and treat diabetes at this time, are focused on trying to improve how the body will handle insulin, or the body's insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance, and thereby enable the beta cells to work better. Um, but ultimately, for long and and so that's why the, the, um, such interventions can can. Um, uh, benefit the or could reduce the risk of progression of diabetes but ultimately to change the natural history we really need to change um, the um, biology of the uh, defective beta cells okay and I always like to ask this question to clinician scientists because you also get to work with patients a lot of the research I talk to researchers I talk to are just in the lab so how does working with patients inform the work that you're doing in these areas well it informs it in a few ways one, you see the real face of the condition that you're trying to treat, which sometimes we are, are removed from when we're focusing only on our research. Two, um, the insights of patients themselves can inform the questions that you want to ask. Um, a, a very, um, a very, uh, an example that I'll give you is that um, you know we talked earlier about reversibility of beta cell dysfunction and how we do clinical trials of interventions to try to um, reduce uh, or, or change the, um, the natural history of that beta cell dysfunction. And one of the interventions that we use is short-term intensive insulin. And so we've done um, a series of trials where patients with type 2 diabetes receive three to four weeks of short-term intensive insulin to improve beta cell function, and then they go on to some other therapy to try to maintain that initial benefit. And um, one of the um, uh, um, uh, situations in which I can remember a patient asking the very same question that we as researchers ultimately came to was the following. We know that that short-term intensive insulin can improve beta cell function, um, and we were asking what to follow it with to maintain that benefit. Um, we had a patient from, who had participated in one of our trials ask, why don't we just repeat that insulin intermittently over time? And it was, his timing was fabulous in asking that question because we actually were thinking the same thing. And that actually has led to a clinical trial called Resetit, which is a multi-center um, uh, randomized controlled trial that's going on in Toronto, London and Hamilton, in which we are testing that very question. It's, I, I bring it up only because um, it's, it shows um, how uh, the very questions that um, we might ultimately want to be answered can be um, um, 
generated, not only by the researchers, but the patients themselves. And I think that when you look at how um, how you said that you see the patients every day, so it's not so much the science, although it is the science, but there's also a human element, and I think that that's really comforting to a lot of people knowing that, that some of the researchers are also treating patients. Absolutely, it really does keep you grounded and helps to um, uh, essentially uh, underscore why it is that we're doing this work and what is the ultimate goal and objective here. And a lot of the work that you have done has been funded by Diabetes Canada and I wanted to ask you what that funding means. Well I think the funding from Diabetes Canada is absolutely essential for the, for the um, uh, long-term um, maintenance and success of diabetes research in Canada. Uh, Canada, as you know, has a um, very prolific history in diabetes research. Um, and going forward, in an era when um, government funding for biomedical research is often being cut and um, you're often in the situation of, of um, uh, competing against various other conditions and various other priorities for um, uh, funding to support research, uh, the role of Diabetes Canada becomes particularly important because here we have an organization that is specifically focused on this very important condition and I think as uh, diabetes um, uh, researchers and as a uh, clinician, um, i.e. you know in both ways a stakeholder in diabetes care in Canada, um, I think the role of Diabetes Canada um, is uh, particularly important to me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. You've been listening to the Diabetes Canada podcast. If you would like to learn more about gestational diabetes or diabetes in women, I highly recommend listening to episode 22 of the podcast featuring Dr. Lorraine Lipscomb and episode 20, which featured Dr. Denise Fagg discussing diabetes and pregnancy. If you would like to help Diabetes Canada continue to fund research projects like Dr. Rednikarin's, visit diabetes.ca slash donate to make a donation. Like the podcast? Consider subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. Want to send us a note? We're on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram at Diabetes Canada. Thanks for listening. Bye.